Thank you for uh, welcoming me this morning, Crossroads. I always, uh, I always love being, being among you. Um, uh, seven years ago, right now, it's hard to believe that the time has gone by that, that quickly. Um, the seminary sent a couple of us on a, a trip to Israel, and we were uh, among a group of about 40 or so Crossroads people with Rod and Libby and Steve, and um, that experience was just wonderful for me and was really uh, strategic and significant in my uh, life story. So I look back on that time fondly. And anytime I am able to be among Crossroads people, I, I'm just I'm really thrilled and grateful. Um, a couple months ago, Rod emailed me and said that uh, they were studying Romans, that you all were studying Romans backwards, starting from the end which is exactly how you have to study Romans. Uh, we have to know where Paul is going so that we can understand how he ended up getting there. And uh, so I was really thrilled for you all. And then he asked me if I would come and do uh, a one-week overview of chapters 1 through 11 because uh, you all were covering 16, 15, 14, 13, and 12. And uh, I took a little while to write him back because that's insane. Uh, to just sort of tell the story of what's going on in chapters 1 through 11 of Romans, all I will be able to think about is how uh, unfairly I would be treating uh, all of these very significant passages. And um, so I took some time and tried to come up with some arguments for why I could not, unfortunately, take up that invitation to do this. But uh, they all were sort of insufficient in the end, uh, especially because what I was thinking of was how it is that when Phoebe carried Romans to all the different house churches in Rome and read it to them uh, out loud, um, Paul thought of and Phoebe thought of Romans as one sermon. It's one sermon. And it's got to be sort of handled as a whole. So I thought, well, maybe this would be a good opportunity for me to put the whole thing together and to see what the forest looks like of Romans rather than um, getting lost in the trees. So um, I took up that invitation that Rod offered, and I'm very happy to be talking about this with you. And I'm going to try uh, as best as I can to talk a little bit like a junior higher on energy drinks because there's a lot to talk about, uh, but I don't want to be too overwhelming. So this is a little bit intimidating. Um, Thankfully, though, this is re being recorded, so if, you, if this is just a lot of material, you can go back and listen to it. And uh, I encourage you to email Dan or Joel or whoever, and you can, you can email me and get the slides to see how uh, I structured this talk. And also, I uh, have found this to be very, very helpful over the last 15 years or so. The pages of Romans in my Bible are very crispy because I've stopped studying my Bible when I study Romans, and I've taken the text of Romans and uh, put it in a Word document and double-spaced it and made it like one continuous flow so I can underline it and draw connections and, you know, see what Paul is doing and uh, not be distracted by, like, uh, topic headings that our translators put in. Um, and I have that uh, as a file, so if you want to dig into Romans and you want that, please email me and I'll be glad to send that to you. I found that to be a great way to study the text of Romans. So let's just get into it. 
This is what Romans is, is, um, is all about, I've discovered, which in my study of Romans, this was kind of surprising to me. I don't know that I would have titled Romans uh, Welcome One Another when I first started digging in. I might have thought it was about the importance of justification by faith or something like that, because in the history of our interpretive tradition uh, that, that does affect us, that's what we sort of foreground as important. Um, but Paul is exhorting communities to welcome one another. And you've talked a little bit about the situation up and running in the Roman churches. Uh, Romans is a conflict resolution document because there are two groups in the Roman house churches. There's a group of Jewish Christians and probably a significant number of Gentile Christians agree with them that believe that to be Christian is to live like a Jew. To be Christian is to live a Jewish mode of life. And if you thought that, you would have a lot of material on your side, basically the Bible. Uh, and the Jewish Christians imagine that they do have the Bible on their side. Because for over a thousand years, being the people of God looked like living like a Jew. And so they are using scripture to endorse their position. They imagine that they, they, they don't think that they're articulating a position. They think they're articulating what the Bible says. And they've got Abraham on their side. And they probably have some slogans that, that, um, that they use to summarize their position, like to the Jew first and then to the Greek. To the Jew first and then to the Greek, which is a slogan that Paul uh, cites a couple times early in the letter. And he says, you know, the gospel is the power of God to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Oh, by the way, chapter two, judgment to the Jew first and then to the Greek. So maybe we can turn that on its head. Paul's being very challenging and playful, um, sarcastic even in many points in this Roman letter. So there's one side that thinks they know what it looks like and what it means to live as a Christian, to live as Christian community. And then there is another side, another group of Gentile Christians that are not convinced that you have to be a Jew to be a good Christian. They are not convinced. They are convinced you could be a Greek and be Christian, or you could be a Turk and be Christian, or you could be Egyptian and be Christian. You don't have to uh, take on a Jewish mode of life. So we have groups that have a different way of thinking about being Christian, and the line that divides them is ethnicity. And um, there's a long tradition of scripture that one group is looking to. And it appears that one of those groups, the Jewish Christian group, is passing judgment on the Gentile Christian group. They're judging them for being less super Christian as them. They are being, they're judging them for being less righteous than them. They are passing judgment because that group is the ungodly group and we are the godly group. That group is the group of sinners, and we are the group of holy ones or saints. So Paul has to write to um, bring these two groups together and unite them together. Like I said, Romans is a, is a text that is about conflict resolution. Uh, so it's a very pastoral text. This has been one of the revolutions in my thinking. I was taught that Romans is all about theology. It's all about theology. It's all about abstract stuff in our brains. And um, if you 
don't have the same mental furniture arranged the way that I do in your head, then I will pass judgment on you for having a less, a less, um, a lesser theology, which is interesting. One of the interesting things about our Christian cultures is we could take a text meant to unify the church and actually divide among ourselves, which is it's possible to use the Bible inappropriately. So, where is Paul actually going? What's his ultimate aim? His ultimate exhortation in Romans is this. Uh, by the time he gets to the end, summing everything up, he says, issuing first a blessing and then giving an exhortation. Now may the God of perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another. <clears throat> I want you to agree with each other about the importance of church unity, about belonging to each other according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord in unity you may with one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in some of our translations, it, it says voice, with one voice, but I changed it uh, to be mouth because that's the Greek text, has mouth. In Romans, a lot of body parts have been hijacked by sin and God is redeeming body parts. I thought it was important to put that in there. Therefore, and this is where Paul is going, welcome one another, welcome one another. Some of our translations are very anemic, and they have something like accept one another, which doesn't at all get at the importance of what welcoming is all about. Welcoming is all about offering hospitality. Welcoming one another is all about um, celebrating the other as a dignitary. Welcoming the other means setting a table and inviting the other to sit down for a meal, to linger with each other, and to give honor to each other. And hospitality in the ancient world had everything to do with, with uh, having solidarity with one another. You are who you eat with in the ancient world, much like today. But in the ancient world, you are who you eat with. Um, so people of the same family would enjoy meals together. People of the same uh, craftsman guild would have meals with each other. People from the same town, people of the same ethnicity. People of the same social class would, would gather together and celebrate their common identity. Um, Jesus completely scrambles table practices on the pages of the Gospels. He's always eating with the wrong people. This man welcomes sinners and tax collectors, complain the Pharisees. He's always welcoming uh, outsiders. He's always welcoming the wrong people. And so all the Bible scholars get together and confront Jesus about that. And Paul wants the Roman Christians to do the very same thing. You two competing factions sit together at table and celebrate one another. Welcome one another. Because to do that is to be like Christ. Christ identified the other and that's all of us and welcomed us. So to be like Christ is to welcome one another. And that's how Christ glorified God. He welcomed us to the glory of God. So we glorify God when we welcome one another. For I say, and Paul goes on to get a little bit more challenging, for I say that Christ has become a servant 
to the circumcision, that is to the one group, he's become a servant to that group on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers, and he's become a servant to the Gentiles. Christ has become a servant to both of the groups in the Roman churches, and Christ has welcomed both of the groups in the Roman churches. So Paul wants both of the groups in the Roman churches to welcome and serve one another. That's where Paul is going in this letter. So how does he get there? Let's take a look at how he goes about getting there in 30 minutes. Like I said, this is nuts. We could do it though. There are three movements, three movements, three, three sort of chunks of text in Romans 1 through 11. Uh, the first of these is found in Romans 1 to 5, or more accurately, 118 to the end of, uh, sorry, no, not to the end of chapter 5, to 511. And in this section of text, Paul is making this big point. All of you in the Roman house churches who disagree with each other and have Bible verses to back up what you think, all of you are actually one in Christ. All of you are one in Christ. Now here's a flyby of how he goes about getting there. In Romans 1, 18 to 32, there's this long section of text where Paul talks about how God is pouring out wrath on all human sin. <clears throat> now I say that this is a setup because here's what's going on in this section of text. Romans 1, 18 to 32 is very interesting. It, it, it resembles some Jewish texts from the ancient world where Jews would talk about how Gentiles have fallen into absolute degradation and sort of why God could never accept them as his people. Did you catch that? Romans 1, 18 to 32 resembles kind of a Jewish screed about Gentile unrighteousness. And it's probably the case that the Jewish Christians in the Roman churches are using language like Romans 1, 18 to 32 to talk about how unclean the Gentile Christians are. Or maybe God has accepted them, but they still are tainted by that long history of idolatry and descent into disobedience and rebellion against the one true God. So when Phoebe is reading 118 to 32, the Jewish Christian group that's passing judgment on the Gentile Christian group, they're like, Paul's on our side. Yeah, yeah, amen. He's given it to those Gentile Christians. They feel like he's on their side. Until Phoebe gets to chapter two, verse one, and turns on the Jewish Christian group, the judging group, to show them that they also basically are attached to that same long, ugly history of Gentile descent into idolatry and degradation. They share that history. That history is theirs, even if they think that they've escaped it by having the right kind of Christianity. There is no no person who has any kind of uh, elite status above anybody else because their history is uh, a history of purity. So Paul springs the trap on the judging group. And his, his, task, that's a, uh, his, his task in 3, 1 to 20, by the time he gets to the end of 320, uh, is to show that all of the Roman Christians were enslaved to the cosmic power of sin. 
Sin had ensnared and trapped everybody in the Roman churches. And some of these verses are very familiar to many of you. All have sinned and lacked the glory of God. Uh, We, by application, talk about that as being all humanity. Paul meant all the Roman Christians. All of you in Rome have sinned. And all of you lack the glory of God. The glory of God uh, in Scripture is, is basically a way for Bible writers to talk about what it means to be truly human. We read this earlier in Psalm 8. Uh, in Psalm 8, the psalmist celebrates the significant place that God has made humans to, to occupy in his creation. Having authority and dominion over creation. And then the psalmist says, you crowned the human with glory and honor. All of us have failed to be truly human. All of us have failed to be truly human, and God is rescuing all of us. So, the bad news up to 320. And then Paul turns to the good news in 321. That's a typo in number four, and it's going to bother me. Uh, It's supposed to be 321 to 26. Uh, God has actually acted to justify all the believers in Rome. All are united in condemnation, and all are united in salvation. So there is nobody that can pass judgment on anybody else in the Roman churches. And this is the big point that Paul makes in 327 to 31, uh, where he says, where then is boasting? Boasting is eliminated. It's gone. You cannot have one group in the Roman churches sort of celebrating their superiority over another group. That kind of posture is eliminated. You cannot boast in being part of the right group of Christians. There is no right group of Christians. All God's people belong to him, so no group can pass judgment on any other group. Boasting is eliminated. Uh, what, what is kind of interesting about what Paul does in, uh, by the time he gets to chapter 5 is he actually gives to the Roman Christians a new boast. Uh, because a boast in the first century world, is a way of identifying yourself. It's a calling card. It's what gives you significance. It's what gives you value. It's who you are. And so Paul is going to transform their boast. Uh, Like I said, in the Roman Christian uh, churches, the Jewish Christian group is probably celebrating their attachment to Abraham, saying that Abraham is their father. These Gentile Christians don't have any wonderful, celebrated biblical heritage the way that we do. Paul says Abraham is the father of all of you in the Roman churches. And so all of that leads Paul to articulate for the Roman Christians how, he, how they all have a new boast. And what's a little bit unfortunate is that many of our translations um, use the word exult, which is a good word, uh, exult in 5, 1 through 11 several times. But that's the Greek word for boast. We have a new boast and here's how Paul articulates their new boast. This is, this is your new identity. It's characterized by three things, which is really instructive. As I say, they're boasting in group identity. Boasting in being part of the right group is eliminated. That's gone because God justifies all on the same basis. But here's what Paul says in chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our entrance or introduction or access into this grace in which we now stand. So Paul basically 
shows how it is that all the Roman Christians stand together in a new cosmic location. We stand in a new place. We are gathered together in Christ, which Paul also calls this grace. We stand together in this grace. And he goes on to talk about how that our boast is made up of three things. First of all, he says this, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God, or we boast in the hope of the glory of God. That's our new boast. That's, that's, that's how we identify ourselves. The Roman Christians, and if we see ourselves in this text, us, we identify ourselves by the reality that we are people who are looking to the future where God will transform us. We are people who are looking to the future, to the day when God will glorify us, transform us into the glory of God. That's one of the ways Paul constructs what it means to be Christian. Secondly, uh, this is terrible, but also wonderful. Uh, Paul says we have a second boast. And not only this, but we also boast or exult in our tribulations, knowing we don't boast in our tribulations because we're nuts. We don't boast in our sufferings because we're crazy and a bunch of self-flagellating, self-hating people. Uh, some people celebrate their sufferings in, in the weirdest ways for the weirdest reasons. But Paul goes on to say that we actually boast, we identify ourselves by our sufferings. Why? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. This is one of the wonderful realities about this new location in Christ that Paul calls this grace. This grace is a place on the cosmic map where God is transforming our sufferings into fuel for perseverance. This grace is a new place on the cosmic map. It's a place where God is transforming our sufferings into fuel for perseverance. I would have loved it if Paul would have said, one of the realities about being in this grace is that you will never suffer again. All your wildest dreams will come true. The Cubs will win the World Series every year, not just in 2016. This is also a wonderful statement, though, um, because one of the payoffs of this sort of reality is that we are now liberated to speak very frankly and honestly about our sufferings. We are, we are liberated to be very honest about our sufferings. We are a community that likes to and tends to construct a Christianity that is very safe and predictable and positive and optimistic. Um, and one of the unintended consequences of that sort of posture of being Christian is that we don't have a well-cultivated way of talking about our sufferings. We feel that if we are honest about our sufferings and our responses, our emotional responses to our sufferings, then somehow we're making God look bad. Um, I would love to sit over this notion and draw it out a lot more, but for more on this, read the Psalms. Psalms have, psalmists have a very honest way of talking about how hard it is to go through suffering. But one of the wonders of this new reality is our sufferings can be turned into fuel for perseverance. When we suffer, God is at work in the body to look after a suffering body part. That brings us together. And when we suffer, there's a lot of um, 
the frivolous aspects of our lives are sort of pared away and we dig deep and God can press us more into himself and God can press us as communities uh, more tightly together. Suffering, we're supposed to respond to suffering by saying, ow, this hurts like hell. We're not supposed to respond to suffering by saying, oh, this is fine. But we can also remind ourselves that this is how God is empowering us to make it to the final day. There's more, more than one thing can be true, but we often don't recognize that as Christian people. But our sufferings are one of our key identifiers as Christian people. This is one of the, one of the ways that Paul constructs being Christian. We suffer. And our, the third thing that he says about what it means to be Christian Take this from verse 11 of chapter 5. And not only this, but we also exult or we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. That is how Paul constructs Christian identity. We are the people who will be transformed in the future. We are the people who suffer. We suffer with Christ. We suffer with a suffering creation. And we suffer with one another. Paul goes on to say in the rest of Romans. And... We belong to God. We belong to God through having all the right theological opinions. So, oh, that's not up there. We belong to God in Christ by belonging to the right kind of Christianity. We belong to God in Christ by having identifiers that are approved by my social setting. We belong to God through having read all the right books having followed the right parenting manual. We belong to God in Christ by listening to the right podcast or having the right political affiliation. We are the people who celebrate the fact that we belong to God because of Christ and that's it. It is so wonderful and liberating and terrifying and threatening that Paul constructs being Christian in this way. Because think about all that we add to it. We add a lot to it. We add a lot to our Christian identity. And it is really hard. It is really hard. I have found this to be a very difficult task to do the, the work of self-reflection as to how I have sort of inadvertently added more identifiers to what I think proper Christians are all about. It's very difficult. It's very, very difficult. If you set yourself to this task, you will probably do like I did for a long time and come up with a bunch of safe answers. We might be divided over whether or not you're a Buckeyes fan or, or Wolverines fan, but we know that these are matters that are secondary. That's very safe. There are many others that are very safe as well. Um, I found that to get at to get at some reflection about how I have inadvertently added more things to what I imagine being Christian is all about. A way of getting at this is to pay very close attention to how my mind starts racing up, how my body feels agitated, and how my emotions are stirred up when I'm paying attention to cultural conversations. And then I take those feelings of discomfort, 
I take them on long walks and I ask myself, what, what is going on? Why did you feel that way? Who do you think you are that that upset you? These are my questions I ask myself. I often take walks in the dark so I can talk out loud. <laughs> Who do you think you are? How is it that having an identity as only belonging to God in Christ is not enough for you, Tim? So I pay attention to how I feel when certain conversations come up. And I've tried as best as I can over the last several years to only have my identity, honestly, be Tim, Christian, Cubs fan. <laughs> that is it. That is it. I am not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not conservative. I'm not liberal. I'm a Christian. And anything that I inadvertently add to that, to this list, that puts me at odds with other Christians, gets in the way of God's purposes in Christ. Like I said, this is very difficult. This is a very difficult quest to go on. It's really, really hard. I say that because we're seeing a lot of failure on our part to do this well among people that are like you and me. And so I'm gonna just kind of talk about what I'm seeing and I ask you to pay attention to your mind right now, pay attention to your body, pay attention to your emotions. To be Christian is to suffer. To be Christian is to suffer with other people. There's a group of people in America today that are inviting all of us into that. There are many groups in America today that are inviting all of us into that. Many black Christians in America today want to talk to us about their experience of suffering, hardship, and oppression, exclusion, marginalization in America over the last 400 years. They want to talk to us. They're inviting us into suffering with. They're inviting us to be Christian. They're inviting us to co-suffer, to hear their stories, to listen, to be patient, to grieve with those who grieve, as Paul says in Romans 12. Pay attention to your thoughts right now. Yeah, but, yeah, but, that sounds liberal. That sounds like you're a Democrat. Yeah, but, you're, you've just surrendered to a, a liberal agenda, Tim. What about, what about, yeah, but, what about, pay attention to how, if your heart is racing, think about the email that you're crafting in your mind right now to me. <laughs> think about the email you want to write to Rod and blame him for inviting this threatening person in here. There are many white Christians who do not grieve with those who grieve, but who explain to those who grieve, or who deny to those who grieve, or who get angry at those who grieve, or who offer rational explanations to those who grieve. I learned all of this in my life, and in response to Paul's exhortations to co-suffer 
I am in the middle of a reorientation where I want to be a listener. I want to be a listener. So I ask you, or I invite you, into a 10, 15, 25, 30-year project of reflecting on how our vision of being Christian has been unintentionally and inadvertently hijacked by other kinds of ways of seeing what Christian identity is all about. It happens so subtly. And it usually will have a ton of Bible verses attached to it. It will almost always have a ton of Bible verses attached to it. So, second movement. Ten minutes for the rest of Romans. The second movement is a cosmic movement, and this is what it looks like. This is what chapters 5 through 8 look like. Paul does not envision uh, the transformation from being outside of Christ to being inside of Christ as something that only happens to, like, my heart. Paul imagines something has happened to the cosmos. The whole world was enslaved to sin and death. We sing this every Christmas. Long lay the world in sin and error, pining, um, and then we forget what we sung. Anyway, the whole world was in this condition where it was called the present evil age and sin and death were ruling over it. And the way that that looked among humanity is that we formed groups and identified ourselves as better than that other group. And so sin and death turned us against each other. But Christ has come and put to death that age and has inaugurated this new age in Christ where we now stand. We stand in that new cosmic space called this grace, also called the new humanity. This is a, a sphere in which the presence of the Spirit is among us. And now our identity is found in Christ with nothing else added and nothing taken away from that. The struggle for us, however, is that we live right in that middle space. We live in the crossover of the ages where the present evil age is up and running among us and this new creation age is up and running among us. And Paul calls us to stop living under the reign of sin and death and enter as fully and effectively as possible into that new age. Live in it. Stir it up. And one of the realities... Um, that we find, and this is what Paul talks about in Romans 5 and then in Romans 7, is that um, we can actually use our Bibles in ways that foster the purposes of sin. This is what Paul is getting at in Romans 5 and in Romans 7. We can inadvertently make Torah, the Old Testament, the Bible, we can inadvertently make it into a weapon in the hands of sin and death to divide community or based on how we are reading scripture, we can put it into the hands of the Spirit to foster God's priorities of unity. And what Paul is inviting the Roman Christians to do is to reflect on how they are reading scripture. Look at your community, Roman Christians, is what Paul is saying. Do you find division? Do you find judgment passing going on? by people who imagine themselves to be elite Christians over less, uh, uh, lesser Christians? If that's the case, then you are reading your Bibles in the wrong cosmic location. You are reading your Bibles with the reign of sin and death up and running. 
And what you need to be doing is living under the lordship of Christ as you function as community and as you read your Bibles. If you are reading your Bibles, Roman Christians, to come up with arguments for why they are wrong and you are right, then you are reading your Bible under the reign of sin and death. If you are reading your Bible to show how it is that you are the answer to your community's problem, you are reading it wrongly. Go to the next slide, please, Casey, because that's basically, I just summarized Romans 5 to 7. Paul talks about life in these two cosmic spheres, and then he exhorts them to live under Christ's lordship as community. And in Romans 7, which is one of the most mystifying passages in Romans, but also uh, enlightening, um, Paul talks about how slippery it is, how slippery it is actually to live in community well because we always tend to sort of imagine that we are the holier than other sorts of Christians among us. How to get out of that? That's what Paul talks about in Romans 8. And Romans 8 is all about living in the victory that God had already accomplished in Christ by embracing one another and by suffering together as Christians. We co-suffer. Uh, Paul says in Romans 8.17, if we suffer together, we will be raised together. How do we look forward actually to that future day of Christ? Well, we suffer together. We suffer together. We look out for one another in our suffering. We pay very close attention to those among us who are suffering. We actually see, we, we learn to see by faith locations of suffering as locations of promise. Where there is suffering in our world, that's where the promise lies for us. And we go there and have solidarity and experience God's power. I was trained as an upper middle class white suburbanite living in America today to get as far away from suffering as possible. And all those impulses in my body are still there. I do not want to suffer. I do not want to see ugliness and degradation and oppression. Um, and that's my confession that I am learning to be a Christian. I'm learning to be a Christian at this point. It's nothing like I thought it was. Okay, the third movement in, uh, in Romans, before we get to Romans 12, is Romans 9 through 11. And um, these are very, very easy passages of Scripture to master, which is why we only need to take three minutes on them. But I call this the awful freedom of God because really awesome is, uh, the old English meaning of awesome is appropriate here, but it's also awful um, because the warning that Paul gives by the end of chapter 11 is really unsettling, very unsettling for people like me. Um, and the question up and running here in Romans 9 through 11, but Romans 9 especially, is how in the world can God just switch agents? Earlier in Romans, Paul talks about how God is working out his purposes of making all things right in the gospel. That makes perfect sense to us. It's not complicated at all because we're 2,000 years removed from when that message was first delivered. For the Roman Christians, that's like, what? Because for over 1,000 years, God had been working in the world through Israel, through Torah. Can God just throw out that whole plan and go with something else? How's that work? And so this is what Romans 9 is all about. And Romans 9 delivers this terrifying message. 
If God selects an agent for salvation, if God selects an agent of the salvation of others, and that agent becomes an obstacle to God's saving purposes, God will harden that agent and set that agent aside. Pharaoh is the first agent of salvation. Let my people go. Pharaoh did not want to do that. God hardened him, set aside, and destroyed uh, the Egyptian army uh, to prove his point. Um, Israel later became an agent of salvation. Israel became a recalcitrant, stubborn people and became an obstacle to saving. So God hardened them and has set them aside. By the end of Romans 11, Paul speaks to you and to me. Be wary, Gentile Christians, of arrogance. Behold the kindness and severity of God. Behold the kindness and severity of God. It's, a, oh, it's frightening. If you become complacent, Gentile Christians, God will harden you too. If we become complacent about being agents as a corporate body of God setting his world right, God reserves the privilege and the prerogative of setting us aside as bodies of people. It's a terrifying thing that God is as committed as he is to saving. God is so committed that he will not tolerate obstacles. By the, by the time he gets to Romans 11, however, Paul also talks about God's faithfulness and God's kindness. He is going to redeem Israel because he has made promises to them. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, he has set them aside. And what is it that Israel actually did to fail to get in on God's saving purposes? Israel became um, completely uninterested in reaching out to the nations, in reaching out to the ethnic other, in reaching out to people they were threatened by. They became entirely uninterested in that. And they became very interested in policing group boundaries to make sure everybody was doing it just right. They became very interested in policing the boundaries of national community life to make sure everyone was doing it just right. Which is basically what the Jewish Christians have fallen into in the Roman churches. Policing group boundaries to make sure that everybody was doing it just right. So... couple things in closing. These are the three movements of Paul in uh, Romans 1 through 11. And I realize I've uh, hardly done justice to all that Paul is doing. And I'll just mention that this is what you have already covered in your study of Romans, um, culminating in that ultimate command of Paul to welcome one another without the expectation of trying to change the other. Welcome the other without trying to change the other. This has been a challenge to me because I was raised on, um, I was raised with a vision of us going out to transform others and the Bible is our resource to do that. And have come to see that God is out to change me with the resource of scripture and often my encounters with people who are unfamiliar can become opportunities for God to change me.
So this final command, this ultimate command that we already uh, saw at the beginning, this exhortation to welcome one another, just as Christ also welcomed us for the glory of God. To welcome one another, just as Christ welcomed us for the glory of God. So a couple of questions, or a couple of takeaways. First a statement, and then a couple of questions. Um, Romans teaches us the absolute fundamental importance of the unity of the church. The absolute fundamental importance of the unity of God's people. The unity of God's people. This is a challenge for us, for all of us, all of us. We are shaped by hundreds of years of being Christian where we divide from the people that we disagree with. How do you turn all those impulses around to begin to see the absolute fundamental importance of unity? However we do it, we've got to do it. There will be people that we disagree with in community. Paul does ne he never instructs us to change one another. He instructs us to celebrate one another and realize that your opinions um, should be kept to yourself. Even if it's attached to a load of Bible verses. Secondly, what does it mean to be Christian? What does it look like to be Christian? Very simple. Our expectation and our hope of being transformed at the day of Christ into the glory of God. Our embrace of suffering, our embrace of the suffering of others and our embrace of the suffering creation. And thirdly, our celebration that we belong to God because of Christ. People who own a way of being Christian that looks like that are our brothers and our sisters. I may have mentioned this before. I think I mentioned this in the first service. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago in an Irish Catholic neighborhood. One of the most important ways that we lived out our Christianity is that we were not Catholic. Anything the Catholics did, we did not do. And we never talked about Mary. We did not cross ourselves because we did not want to be Catholic. This is funny. I, I was teaching some evangelical undergrads years ago, and I, I just asked them if, when I walked into class. I said, what would, it, what would you think if I just began class by doing this? I said, oh, you can't do that. It's Catholic. This is Catholics do. I just thought, and I asked them, isn't it interesting that we are hesitant to publicly identify our bodies with the cross? But all of you are very willing to identify your bodies with the Detroit Lions or the Green Bay Packers. T-shirts and hats. We will say our body, this body, Packer fan. But because of our neighbors, we will not say this body, cross. Something bizarre about that, by which I mean tragic. Finally, what does it mean to glorify God? As far as Paul constructs glorifying God, glorifying God is welcoming and serving others. Welcoming and serving others with no expectation to change them. 
with no expectation to make them like us. Welcoming and serving others. To my mind, this means that one of our big tasks as Christian people in this world is to learn all about the others in our culture. What is it like to live in this land as the racial other? What is it like to live in this land as the ethnic other? What is it like? What is it like to live in this world and in this country as the political other? What, is it like, what does it look like to live in this country, in this culture, as the gendered other, even the religious other? The question that I've had in my mind all week is this. Are we being trained, or am I being trained by the gospel to see encounters with others as promising? Or am I being trained by my culture to see others as threats? Am I being trained by the gospel to see encounters with others as opportunities that are promising? Or am I being trained by my culture to see others as threats, as the enemy, as the one I need to change? Christ identified us as the other and welcomed us to the glory of God. Let us welcome one another.